From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. The 21st anniversary of uh, the death of Lady Diana, uh, the former Princess of Wales, August 31st, of course, August 1997. Uh, she died as a result of injuries sustained in a car crash in the Elma Tunnel in Paris, France. Her companion, Dodi Fayed, and the driver of uh, their Mercedes, Henri Paul, were pronounced dead at the scene. A fourth passenger in the car, of course, bodyguard Trevor Reese Jones, was seriously injured uh, but survived. Uh, my guest, Sarah Whalen, is a journalist and attorney. She taught law or has taught law as the Abraham Friedman Teaching Fellow at Temple University and won the New Orleans Press Club's Writers Prize in 2006. And her book is Royal Vengeance, The Assassination of Princess Diana and the Ancient Royal Cult of Human Sacrifice. Sarah Whalen, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm intrigued because I'm not aware of a lawyer actually approaching this subject and then writing a book, because as a lawyer, you're all about the evidence, right? That's correct. You know, a lot of lawyers tend to shy away from controversy, or some lawyers embrace it. I think I go in the middle. I'm much more evidence-driven, but I had been following the Princess Diana saga before she died. And I also have a master's in history, and I was very interested in British royal history. So I'd follow that closely. And I actually, you know, I didn't have a psychic vision or anything, but I looked at the evidence after Princess Diana was interviewed by the BBC on the news show called Panorama. And I predicted that the royal family would kill her as a result of that interview. I mean, yeah, I made it half-joking, but I was quite serious. I said, you know, I don't think she's going to, she won't last a year. Because this actually, was the interview where a lot of us, our jaws hit the ground when she said, Prince Charles is not fit to be king. This is correct. And this was a theme that she launched. She made it her mission to ensure that that would not happen. She wanted to sabotage his kingship and put Prince William in his place with herself as regent or co-regent with Charles's brother, Prince Andrew. That was her plan, and she spoke about it very openly. She spoke about it on Panorama. She was a little oblique on Panorama, but to other people including newspaper editors who she invited to have lunch with her at Kensington Palace, she made it clear that, you know, this was her mission. It's almost like the War of the Roses, but, you know, modernized so that all this battle 
between the various houses competing for the throne of the United Kingdom. All this battle is going on behind the scenes, backstage. Instead of being fought you know, on the battlefield, it's being fought through legal channels and very surreptitiously. Yes. You know, if she had lived a few centuries earlier, she would have been very, very typical because I think that English power has always been a combination of those factors, you know, battles and the backstory. And this is especially true with women who, you know, historically have not engaged in battle, but they certainly have engaged in a lot of backstabbing, even executing themselves, I mean, suffering execution, but also, you know, many women manage to have their own family members executed in order to achieve some particular end. And they were able to do that because there is a very ancient tradition since Paleolithic times of human sacrifice in England among royalty. Fascinating. So, If we were to explore the Spencer bloodline, if I remember correctly, it goes back, does it go back to the Stuart line or even further to the Tudor line? Well, it's certainly, you know, Tudors would would be considered early. The Spencers itself, it's rather unclear. They're definitely aristocrats. They were sheep farmers. They made their fortune doing that. How exactly they appear is kind of couched in mystery. Diana's father claimed to be from an ancient Saxon line, and that's probably likely true. But that's true of many people in England. It didn't really make her so special, but it did make her very English, you know, rather than British. She also had Irish blood, and as you say, she also had a claim with the Spencer royal line. So, yes, through her blood, a lot of different lines came into play in the royal family that had not been seen in centuries, mostly because the current royal family is a big influx of German blood. They're from European royal houses. And is the question of Charles' suitability to be king, is that creating a not a vacuum necessarily, but at least allowing for different challenges from different families to vie for control of the throne because, you know, he would be the the head of the Church of England and yet he is divorced, he is marrying a divorcee. I mean, this is why Edward VIII presumably was forced to abdicate. True. The Duke of Windsor and the notorious Wallace Simpson, yes, he was forced to abdicate. Even though he was willing to allow the line to go to the young Princess Elizabeth, you know, because that would have been the way it was. It didn't appear that Wallace Simpson could have any children of her own. But they were not going to allow him to take that line for a lot of political reasons. However, the fact he had married someone who had been divorced twice, here's how it works, and it does go back to Henry VIII. You know, initially, England was basically a Roman Catholic country. There was only Catholicism, per se. And, of course, the head of the church was in Rome. Henry had only a female heir with his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and that would have been Princess Mary, who later became queen as Bloody Mary. And, of course, 
they were all Catholic, and Catherine was a daughter of the king and queen of Spain, and they were exceptional Catholics in a way. I mean, their their loyalty was unreserved, but she could not provide a living male heir. Catherine was pregnant numerous times. Children did not live long. There was thought, actually, to be a curse because she had been married to Arthur, who was King Henry's older brother, and he was the crown prince at the time. And right after their marriage, he died. And a lot of people say, well, you know, maybe he had tuberculosis or he was just weak or he caught pneumonia. But they themselves believed that their line had been cursed because of two executions that took place. When the Tudors came in, they were not natural heirs to the throne of England. And there were actually pretenders, people who they called the pretenders, And um, both of them, well, one was executed, and the other was just kind of allowed to live out his life in obscurity. So they believed that because of this execution, and that they had executed someone who had a better claim. And it goes back to Richard of Shrewsbury, the Duke of York. There were two little princes in the tower the sons of Edward IV, and Edward IV was deposed. And this is how the Tudors came into power. And the children were put in the Tower of London, supposedly for safekeeping, until they could become of age. But it's believed that their uncle murdered them, or had them murdered. This is Richard III, correct? Yes. And then suddenly, you know, years later, a young man appeared and said, hey... I was one of the princes in the tower, and I survived, and I have a claim to the throne. And quite a few people believed that he did. And in fact, he was crowned at numerous places. He was identified as the prince by his surviving relatives, and he was set up, you know, for a claim. He wasn't much of a soldier. He he did try to invade with armies. He never really got off the ground. He was captured. He surrendered. He was imprisoned. And then, of course, he was made to confess to being an imposter. And then he was allowed to appear at Henry's court. And this is the father of Henry VIII. He was brought to royal banquets. He was also married to a woman who also, her family line, had a really strong claim. And they were not allowed to be together. They were kept entirely separate, and eventually Perkin Warbeck, which was the name he was using, he tried to escape, and then he was put in the tower. Although they couldn't see each other, he was put in a cell right next to Edward Plantagenet, who was the 17th Earl of Warwick, and supposedly the two tried to escape together, and then they were hanged. Ah, so such intrigue. <laughs> yes, but Catherine is Aragon in her notebooks, and she also spoke to, you know, she was visited. As I said, she was the daughter of the King of Spain, so the Spanish ambassador was often visiting her, even though she was farmed out to a faraway castle. She would still get visits from the ambassador and members of the Spanish court. 
And she made it clear that she thought the fact she could not have live sons or sons who would live a long time, she felt this to be a curse from these executions. And uh, so that was, you know, her take on it. And a lot of people believed her at the time because actually those individuals, or at least the family lines that were claimed by those individuals, had a much stronger claim to the British throne than Henry Tudor had. Although, of course, you know, the Tudors put their mark on British royalty. However, you know, the fact is none of them had surviving male heirs. And there you so are. You Listen, we have to take a we have to take a time out. Sure. Uh, Sarah will come back. Uh, it seems nothing has changed. Just constant uh, palace intrigue, and we are talking about the uh, the upcoming anniversary of the uh, the tragic death of uh, the former princess of uh, Princess Diana, and uh, we will come right back. Stay with us right here on the Conspiracy Show. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back. Sarah Whalen is with us, uh, the author of Royal Vengeance. And uh, August 31st, of course, marks the 21st anniversary of the uh, the death of uh, Princess Diana. Technically, she wasn't Princess Diana anymore, Lady Diana. Technically, she still was a princess. Oh, really? She was not, yes. She was not allowed to keep her royal highness um, ah. address, but she was still Diana, Princess of Wales. Ah, so she I, was like I thought a that she'd princess. been stripped of her, her title. Well, yes and no. She was stripped mm-hmm. of the HRH, which meant she could not be addressed as her royal highness. That's reserved for the queen and her immediate family. Right. But she was still in the royal orbit, and she did still have a title. But instead of being the Princess of Wales, which was a title that was always given to, well, not always, but traditionally, it was a title bestowed upon the heir to the throne. And nope. uh, But she became a Princess of Wales, which meant, you know, that was, that was her title. She was no longer the wife of the heir. Right. Although no longer her, her you know, a um, her highness or her, I'm sorry, what was her title? Royal again? Highness. Her, right. She's no longer uh, her royal highness. Right. She should have been, one would think, as the mother of two, uh, the, the mother of a future king, she should have been entitled to... Uh, more formal type security. Uh, who, who made the decision to strip her of that? She was entitled to it, and she herself, um, at least that's the claim, she, that she did away with her own security. And um, that seems to be true. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for it. You know, some people point out, well, you know, she had quite a sex life. She was very active. She had lovers. And, you know, people were leaking information about it, and she didn't trust her security detail. Uh, if you want to look, take a deeper view, I think she was also afraid that everything she did would be reported back to the royal family, which, of course, it was. 
Right. And I she, think regardless, right? I mean, there was there was so many eyes on her, so many, I'm sure, phones being tapped and just sure. spies everywhere. Yeah, and she she would periodically tear up her carpets and, you know, people have written about it, you know, saying, oh, she was paranoid. You know, she pulled up the floorboards. She showed me an electric cord and, and you know, I looked at it and it didn't look like a listening device to me. But I think it's pretty clear that, of course, she was being watched. I mean, they they would have been very daft not to watch her, even under the best of circumstances. But she had a series of accidents with her cars, and she believed that her brakes had been tampered with. And uh, she had her brakes checked several times. And, of course, you know, she was close to her butler, Paul Burrell, and she confided in him. And, you know, he would take the car out to have it checked for tampered brakes. They never could find anything. But it wasn't like she was taking it to an independent person to have it evaluated. But she also told Andrew Morton, the writer of Diana, her true story, although he was actually just transcribing her own tapes where she told her own story. But she had confided to him as well that she thought her car had been tampered with and that the palace uh, was planning an accident that would either kill her or disable her mentally so that she would be institutionalized and Charles would be allowed to remarry. And this was an issue. It's not an issue today because Canterbury, the the main Church of England actually changed the rules. But since the time of Henry VIII, the rule had been that the monarch was head of the church, the supreme leader of the church. And Queen Elizabeth keeps this title even today. And yes. that the, the leader of the church could not be divorced. And this is the, you know, everybody thinks, well, Henry had all these divorces, but he didn't really. He sought to have his first marriage annulled on the grounds that uh, Catherine of Aragon had first been married to his brother, and he found uh, a section in Leviticus in the Old Testament that said, you know, uh, someone who, uh, that a brother should not marry his dead brother's wife. But, of course, elsewhere in the Bible, it says that you should marry your dead brother's wife <laughs> and and give her children so that, you know, your brother's line can continue through you. Right, right. So this was much debated in the Catholic Church at the time. So, in other words, had Princess Diana lived, uh, then Ch- Prince Charles would not have been able to become king had he, had he chosen to remarry. That's correct. He would, and he was willing to not marry, and and this was this was much discussed openly. And of course, you know they they would leak things, and it was leaked prior to her death that you know Prince Charles had no intention of marrying anyone, let alone Camilla Parker Bowles, even though she herself. After all the information came out, she and her husband, Andrew Parker Bowles, they divorced. And I mean, the interesting thing about that, if you're being gossipy, but it's also very true to ancient English practice. I mean, Camilla Parker Bowles' husband, Andrew, was a Roman Catholic from a very astute, devout Roman Catholic family. 
in England, but his parents were quite close to the Queen Mother. He was a page at uh, Queen Elizabeth's wedding. He was, you know, very tight with the royals, and he actually dated Princess Anne. At the time, there was some discussion that they would marry, but his Catholicism was an impediment. But, you know, it wouldn't have been such a fatal impediment because Princess Anne, uh, even though she's second in line, she's she's second born after Prince Charles, um, but she had three brothers ahead of her because as a female, she would have gone to the back of the line. Right, right. But at the time that all these frolickings were going on where Prince Charles was having, you know, a love affair with Camilla and uh, whose her last name was then Shand, and uh, Andrew was frolicking with Princess Anne. You know, nobody had any children yet. So, and Edward and Andrew were quite young. There's like a decade age difference between the children. So something had happened to the monarch, and something happened to Prince Charles, Princess Anne might have been drafted in to take a lot of royal responsibilities. Interesting. It was preferred that she not marry Andrew Parker Bowles. And in fact, he then turned around and married Camilla while Prince Charles was out at sea. And, you know, the thought was probably, you know, Camilla was not a virgin and Andrew Parker Bowles was a Roman Catholic. So these people were very close inside the royal circle to start with, as was Princess Diana's family. They were also very, very close to royalty, even apart from the Spencer aristocrats. Um, You know, Princess Diana's maternal line was, the closest. I mean, her grandmother, her maternal grandmother, was a lady in waiting to the Queen Mother. You can't, that's really an intimate job. That's someone who basically spends a lot of time with royalty and travels with them. Right, and would no doubt be a confidant. Sure, that's it. They share the secrets. You mentioned Princess uh, Diana writing uh, letters and confiding in in people close to her, her butler, Paul Burrell, that she feared for her life. She also wrote a letter to Scotland Yard, which was sort of just sealed and locked away, and and it never came out. She wrote, Uh, not to Scotland Yard, she wrote a letter to her solicitor. When she was getting divorced, she had a, a divorce attorney, and she brought him the letter and they had a discussion and her aide at the time Patrick Jeffson who's written books about her and he was there he was present so we know that this meeting really happened between her and her lawyer and she said she feared for her life and she wrote a note describing what she thought would happen which was that the brakes in her car would be tampered with and you know this was going to be done so that, you know, the impediment for Charles, the rule in the church is if your former spouse dies, that frees you to remarry. You can't remarry while your former spouse is still living. But when they're dead, you can remarry. And this was from the earliest days of the founding of the Church of England. So it allowed for divorce 
if you can't stand each other, you're allowed to divorce, but you cannot remarry in the church. And Charles, you know, the question was then, if Charles divorced, could he become head of the Church of England? And the, the, the truthful answer at the time all this happened was he could become uh, King of England, but he could not remarry and still be head of the church. And since no monarch had had ever not been head of the church after Henry VIII, um, you know, it would have been like a black spot on him. So right. he said, I'm not going to remarry. And eventually, Canterbury did, they got together and they voted and they changed the law for him. But there had been discussions about it, you know, very early on when problems with the marriage first emerged. But everything has to take place by consensus in the church, and they're very, very careful. Because this opens a floodgate, you know, for there are local churches. Each individual church within the umbrella of the Church of England has a lot of individual power about whether to marry people in their community or not you know, to provide them with a wedding service in the church. And uh, I know a lot of people who are divorced, even despite this change in the law, they can't get a church service. They often have to go to a different parish, sometimes across the country, to find, you know, a local Anglican church willing to marry them. Is it is it fair to say that had Princess Diana lived... Uh, and Charles uh, were to become king, it it could have caused some sort of a constitutional crisis? Yes. She was plotting to create a constitutional crisis. And, and she made it really clear. She met with members of the press all the time. That was why, you know, that's why they had the Andrew Morton book. That's why she... Uh, she went on Panorama, and it was after Panorama, I said, well, for sure, the divorce is going to go through now. I said, but they're, going, they're not going to stop at the divorce. They're, they're going to kill her because she is too vengeful, and they're not going to. I mean, what she said really endangered the crown, and she was very aware of what she was saying. And, you know, she she would periodically go very far. She had an impulsive streak, maybe a little bit of, you know, some psychological issues. I mean, everybody's got them. But certainly someone in her position, you know, she felt very persecuted. And, uh, you know, she was not going to let it go. She was, she was quite determined to take this road. And right. there is there is an anti-monarchical uh, group in England. A lot of people are fed up with the royal family. They think it's anachronistic, and they don't like paying for it. And they don't like the fact that the royals own so much real estate. I mean, the Queen's holdings, the extent of them, are not even known. Oh, I'm sure she's the, the one of the richest uh, people on earth. Listen, Sarah, we'll take another time out. We'll come sure. back and uh, we'll we'll go to Paris on oh, the uh, the night of August the 31st. Sarah Whalen is with me, the author of Royal Vengeance: The Assassination of Princess Diana and the Ancient Royal Cult of Human Sacrifice. Right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. 
The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Sarah Whalen, the author of Royal Vengeance. So let's um, let's go uh, to uh, the I, night of the crash. I just want to clarify one thing, just so there's no confusion on the letter to Scotland Yard. Like I said, that letter went to Mishkan DeRay, who was her lawyer right. in the divorce, and he was very shocked. But he put it in a safe um, in his office. And it wasn't, you know, then he brought it to uh, Scotland Yard, and they put it in a safe, and it didn't see the light of day um, until, you know, the issue came out. And, of course, Paul Burrell produced his copy of the letter. And, you know, there were two inquests prior, right. and, and the letter never came up until the exactly. third inquest. So I just exactly. wanted, you were right, Scotland Yard did sit on the letter, but it was initially written to her lawyer. And by that time, he had died. So, Had it come to light during the inquest, would it have changed anything? Sure. I mean, it was, it was explosive. It was, she, she's, it's in her own writing. It's in her own handwriting. And she says, you know, that he's trying to kill her. And he's going to kill her through a brake accident and with her car that's going to supposedly cause serious head injury. I mean, to me, the most interesting thing about the letter is she doesn't seem to think that they were going to kill her outright, you know. But they were, they were certainly, the motive to kill her was very strong. I don't think she quite understood it. So. Paris, uh, Paris. They fly. Uh, she and uh, Dodie, or she meets Dodie, I guess, in Paris. She flies in from Sardinia the night before. They were together. They, they were together. Taken, All right. Yes, they'd taken a cruise on uh, the Jonacal, which was this spectacular yacht, and I think it was their third cruise together. And so it seemed like they were getting very intimate. And I personally, I looked at all the evidence, uh, which, you know, your viewers can, can look at it too. The, the inquest, the Scott Baker inquest is still online and, uh, you can Google it. And they have all the testimony day by day. You have to hunt a little bit to look for the photographs, but it's a very good source for just about anyone. I highly recommend that they do that if they have any questions. Right. This is a short segment, so we'll we'll start this conversation sure. and we'll carry it on afterwards. But uh, so they're at the uh, they're, stay, they're at the Ritz Hotel, right? Uh, and um, which is owned certain, by Dodi's father, Muhammad Al Fayed. Right. Now, and Ari Paul, uh, his role is is what? He was head of security at the he Ritz. Was, right. Right. He was basically a security man. He was not a professional driver, although on this particular trip he did he did drive he drove a decoy car and you know he put himself in on the night of the accident because the regular driver had been released to go home. Well, this is interesting. So yes, the at the last minute there is a change of plans. 
Who makes Correct. the decision to take a decoy car and go through the Elma uh, rather than where they the other route? Well, they were blaming Doty. I mean, yeah, because Al-Fayed had a security detail. Uh, Kez Wingfield and... Uh, I'm sorry, just drawing a blank here. The guy who went through the windshield, Trevor Reese Jones. Right. Um, they were Mohammed Al Fayed security employees. I might add that they were also British, former British commando soldiers. Yeah, all just about all of Mohammed Al Fayed's personal security had some kind of combat training and experience. So there are a lot of links with intelligence groups with military groups. It's it's very shadowy situation. So the regular car suddenly is switched out because it has right. some problem. The new car comes in, no seat belts. And no tinted windows. No tinted windows, new driver, Henri Paul, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they choose a new route through the Elma Tunnel where the security cameras of all nights, coincidentally, that one night were not operating. Right. Now, it's unclear. I mean, clearly there was an aim. I believe that the aim of security services was to force them into the Alma Tunnel, where all the security cameras had been disabled. I'm not sure if Henri Paul knew about this or not. I mean, Henri Paul definitely had ties to intelligence groups. He seems to have been a very low-level uh, you know, not a formal officer. He was a local person who had ties, and he was probably paid for services. He was, he was a quasi-professional, but someone you'd consider like maybe a contract worker. You know, they may come along and they'll say, hey, you know, um, there's a sheikh staying at the hotel. We want a bug put in his room, or we want to know what time he's leaving, or we want to know who he's meeting in the bar. And Henri Paul would supply that information. When he died, he had a large amount of cash on him. He had thousands of francs. And he also had hundreds of thousands in his bank accounts. And he had more than one account. And given his salary, there was really no way that he could afford that. When we come back, Sarah, we'll also discuss whether, in fact, uh, as we've been told repeatedly, he was drunk. And the uh, the idea here is the, the 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 accident supposedly was caused by a combination of high speed, a drunk driver, and uh, the reckless paparazzi who were in hot pursuit. We'll discuss all with Sarah Whalen when we come back right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Sapp. Welcome back. Sarah Whalen stays with us. This is our uh, two-hour special on the uh, the death of Princess Diana at the 21st anniversary. Sarah Whalen, journalist, author of Royal Vengeance, the Assassination of Princess Diana and the Ancient Royal Cult of Human Sacrifice. Now, uh, I have, I've been told uh, that even before the blood tests, the toxicology reports on Henri Paul were completed, the, the press in England had pronounced him Drunk as a pig, quote end quote, right. which is is interesting. So first of all, was he drunk? I don't think so. Um, 
in theory, there was a blood sample that was taken. But if you, again, if you go to the website and you look at the testimony of the coroners and the doctors who did the analysis and the autopsies, and you'll see that either his sample was contaminated with the blood of another person who died the same night or, uh, you know, it was just contaminated. It doesn't seem to be accurate. First of all, it had a lot of carbon monoxide in it, so much that you wouldn't be able to stand up. And this brought about several theories. People said, well, when the airbag exploded, you know, he must have inhaled the carbon monoxide. It's impossible. I mean, he was killed instantly. He he had his spine was severed in three places. His aorta was severed, uh, and people discounted that theory. Medical people said no, he didn't inhale any carbon monoxide. So you'd have to ask yourself why such a high amount. Mohammed Al Fayed hired crack investigators, former Scotland Yard detectives, and their theory was that the blood of Henri Paul was either replaced or contaminated with the blood of a person who had committed suicide earlier that night by, you know, running a a, uh, a hose into his car so that he asphyxiated from the carbon monoxide in his tailpipe and that he had also been very drunk and he sedated himself with a bunch of pills when when he he did this act of suicide. And so they took that sample and used it to prove that Henri Paul was drunk. And in support of skepticism about Henri Paul being drunk, you have the testimony of Henri Paul's best friend in Paris who knew him quite well. And he said, uh, I think in the apartment... There was maybe a few beers in the refrigerator. He had like a typical French bar, you know, where he had a few things to drink, like some aperitifs. If you invited someone over, you might offer them, you know, a small drink. And that two days later, when they had to prove that Henri Paul was a drunk and an alcoholic and he'd driven drunk, he went back into the apartment and he said that someone had come in and loaded it with all kinds of alcohol, every kind of conceivable, you know, strong spirit, things that Henri Paul never drank and certainly didn't have in his house on a regular basis. So, Remarkable. yeah, his, his friend believed that the police had come in and planted these things because by that time they did have access to the apartment, and they had to, you know, try to bolster the theory that, you know, this was just a tragic drunk driving accident. But that was all knocked out because on the side of the car, on the side of the Mercedes, you could see a white paint scrape, and there was also uh, glass from a Fiat Uno, a white Fiat Uno. And, you know, eyewitness testimony is not hugely reliable, especially when things are happening so quickly and it's such an important person. But the testimony is pretty consistent that right before the Mercedes reached the Alma Tunnel, there was a white Fiat Uno that was just kind of dawdling 
barely even moving. And then once the Mercedes came in behind it, the Fiat Uno started blocking the Mercedes and edging it. And in fact, not only is there the scrape on the side, and we know that that the right uh, rear view mirror of the the outside mirror of the Mercedes was torn off by impact with the Fiat, but there is also a scrape from the the Fiat Uno's tire onto the right side front Mercedes tire, which indicated that it pushed the car into the 13th pillar of the Alma Tunnel. And this was established by impartial experts at the inquest. There's no doubt that the Fiat Uno caused that wreck. And Henri Paul was going, he wasn't going too fast. He was, he was exceeding the speed limit, but that's a pretty common occurrence throughout the world. It's an especially common occurrence in Paris. And unless you, you know, come into contact with a car that intentionally is pushing you to the left of the roadway so that you are going to run into one of these pillars, and the pillars aren't round. They're pointed. They're they're like square pillars. They're highly dangerous. Had the Mercedes hit the wall of the Alma Tunnel on the right side, very likely everyone would have survived the impact, even without seatbelts. But the whole G-forces impact of hitting the the pointed end of the pillar in that way is what caused the death. Right. And, and certainly thir- every... Th- Go ahead. Sorry, the 13th pillar, uh, that can't be a coincidence. You know, and a lot of conspiracy theorists make a big deal, you know, over the number 13, and that, you know, this was all intended and has an occult significance. I don't deny that. And that's entirely possible. You know, the royal family has has had occult dealings for centuries, and it wouldn't surprise me at all that it has significance. You would, and people say, "Well, how could you be so precise about doing this?" But I don't know. But I think if you saw it in a movie, <laughs> you would believe it in a heartbeat. I mean, there are films that that have conspiracy planouts that are certainly infinitely more complex than this one. It's a military operation. It's it is military precision. And and they had a witness, Richard Tomlinson, who was very insistent that this had been a previous that it was a a uh, not a dry run, but it was it was a run of a previous military operation that was aimed at assassinating Milosevic, who, you know, at the time was a thorn in everybody's side uh, when we were having a lot of wars in Eastern Europe, small wars that were very destabilizing. And the idea was they were going to transport Milosevic, follow his motorcade, and take him out in a in a mountain tunnel where nothing could be seen, even by satellite, and they were going to push his car into a similar pillar. So, yes, the military, you know, they, they plan very strategic strike operations all the time. It does not surprise me that they would be able to act with such precision. It doesn't surprise me at all. 
They Not had a little all. help too, a little uh, a method of distracting the driver. This blinding light that people yes, reported seeing in the flash. in the in the tunnel. Tell me that about was, that. Well, that was part of Milosevic's plan. I mean, the, the plan to kill Milosevic. There would be a, uh, and it's not an ordinary strobe like what you might be able to buy yourself. This is a military-grade strobe light. It's often used to destable pilots at night, people trying to land helicopters at night or operate at night. And it, it blinds you. It blinds you for several minutes. So that if you are driving a moving vehicle, you're very likely to lose control of it. You absolutely cannot see where you're going. And so there were witnesses who said when the Mercedes took off with Dodie and Diana and the bodyguard in it, that, you know, it, it made various stops around the Place de la Concorde. And an exit that they would have taken off that strip heading to the tunnel in theory, they would have they would have gone off to another street, which would have taken them directly to Dodi Al Fayed's apartment, which was by the Arc de Triomphe on the other side of Paris. But it would have been a very straight shot. Now, even if you go through the Alma Tunnel, you'd be on the other side of the Seine River. But in theory, as soon as you got out, you would simply make a right-hand turn and follow the river down, and then you would cross again at another bridge close to the Arc de Triomphe, and then you would be home. But that's why this accident had to happen in the Alma Tunnel. And witnesses said that they saw vehicles blocking the exits so that the Mercedes couldn't leave if it wanted to. It had to go through the tunnel. But I don't think that Henri Paul was alarmed. I don't think he had any reason to be alarmed. He just right. thought, I'll have to go through the tunnel, you know, and make a right, and then I'll take, you know, the road down the Seine River, and then I'll make another right, and I'll go through another bridge, and we'll be home. And it, I don't think he had any reason to suspect that anything was wrong, until the strobe hit him, maybe maybe a second before when the motorcycles came, witnesses say that there were, and these are not paparazzi scooters. I just wish to be clear. These are really high-level, very fast motorbikes driven by people in leathers with black helmets obscuring their face. These are not paparazzi chasing around looking for a picture. And what they did was they got on either side of the Mercedes, one whipped around on the left between the, the uh, what it, would you call it, the median, I guess, right, inside right. the tunnel, and then came around to the front of the Mercedes, and it had a passenger riding pinion on the back, and that's the person who hit Henri Paul with a flash. Right, and, so, and then the the white Uno, the mysterious white him. Uno, careened into right. the side, forcing the, the car. While Henri Paul was blinded momentarily, right. forcing the car into the uh, into the pillar. Now, the witnesses also say, after the crash, immediately after the crash, the passenger on that motorcycle jumped off, ran over, looked inside. And made a, a particular hand gesture to the driver of the motorcycle. What was right. that? Crossed his crossed his forearms over his chest, which they say is a military signal that means everybody in the vehicle is dead. 
or presumed dead. And then they got on and they took off. And, you know, even the Fiat Uno witnesses said that, you know, the Fiat Uno just kept going. It went around the carnage and it slowed down a little bit. Some witnesses saw the driver turn around and look at the accident and then take off into the night. And we know pretty much who the driver is. I mean, Mohammed Al-Fayed did pin that down. I don't necessarily agree with his other theories, you know, that Princess Diana was pregnant. Um, but his, his Scotland Yard detective did pretty much determine how the accident took place, and they identified the driver, who was a man named James Andenson. And he had been... a. Uh, not a, he's not truly a paparazzi. He was a professional photographer who specialized in royal houses. And he was also rumored to have deep associations with British intelligence. I mean, he would go meet with, you know, various people, government officials, and then, you know, he would go meet with his contacts in British intelligence. And again, this was a guy who was extraordinarily wealthy. He had an estate in Saint-Tropez. He had a house, I think, in the Burgundy wine region. And he did have a white Fiat Uno. And the paint on the white Fiat Uno matched his paint. And before, they actually brought him in to be interviewed several times. And it's pretty clear that he lied, although we don't know how much he lied because the French inquest is entirely private. I mean, that is well, we'll, not I'll have to jump in and we'll take another time out sure. here, uh, Sarah. When we come back, we'll find out what happened to the driver of the white yeah. Uno. And also, why did it take so long to transport Princess Diana to hospital? Back with more of my conversation with Sarah Whalen, author of Royal Vengeance, The Assassination of Princess Diana, and the Ancient Royal Cult of Human Sacrifice, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.